Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today, I want to talk about religious legalism. And I'm not talking about legalism that's often found within the conservative church, which is the kind of legalism and uh, culture that I grew up in. Rather, I want to talk about legalism that's found on the religious left or within some parts of progressive Christianity. And I want to talk about this today because I know so many who grew up within the conservative church and for any number of reasons are no longer there. And yet they they struggle with what's next for them in their faith journey because something within them feels like there may still be something worth exploring within the Christian tradition. And this is the most common story I hear these days. Um, I just finished leading the first Blueprint Retreat, uh, and that was the most common story uh, of those who attended. And by the way, stay tuned. There is a second Blueprint Retreat coming, and so if you are someone who grew up within the conservative church, you've walked away from it, but since there still might be something worth building, that may be for you. But enough advertising. Um, Many people who are in this place— having grown up conservative, having kind of left that behind, but curious about what may be ahead, many of those who are in this place, when exposed to some progressive Christians, feel as though they don't want to head in that direction either. And there's this feeling of unease and discomfort around certain progressive circles. And they're asking the question like, where do I go? Who's my tribe? What do I do now? And by the way, it's worth noting This is not just a few people. This is a lot of people. And the discomfort and the unease uh, that so many feel is something I want to explore today because I have felt it too. And it took me a bit to understand what was stirring in me. And I think this is an important thing to consider because many of the conversations happening within progressive Christianity are important and need to be heard. And because of that, it's possible there are more healthy ways of engaging in those conversations than bringing in the legalism and self-righteousness that poor religion uh, marinates itself in. In fact, legalism and self-righteousness of poor religion is exactly what has led so many to leave the church in the first place. But one thing I know is that legalism is like a leech, like it attaches itself to our hearts and our souls. I mean, it's a sneaky sucker that keeps creeping in, and it can do so without our noticing. So with that said, uh, I will, in this episode, speak uh, in broader brushstrokes than I often like to do um, when I'm talking about progressive Christianity. However, please know, right from the beginning, I am not talking about all of those who identify themselves as progressive Christians. At the same time, I've experienced the legalism of the, of the progressive Christians enough uh, and in enough places to speak out about it. And so as you listen, I would encourage all of us, no matter where we fancy ourselves, not to immediately say, well, this is not me. Um, maybe it would be a more helpful question to say, Where do I find myself in these words? Are any of the things that I'm hearing true of me? This is actually what I try to do, uh, however unsuccessfully, when criticism and critique come my way. And it may be worth noting as well that um, when I take time to offer critique or criticism of something, 
It's actually because I care about the thing that I'm critiquing. And as I've already said, progressive Christianity, which has been emerging for some time, in, in my opinion, as in my estimation, is far too important to become regressive Christianity. Uh, and so if none of this applies to you in any way, shape, or form, or if I'm way off in my assessment, or if I portray people in an unfair light, then I apologize in advance for this podcast. I really do. But if by any chance there is uh, some truth in what I say, then I hope you and others will find this helpful. One more thing, by the way, I would ask that you, if you're still, if you're still listening at this point, that you would listen to this entire podcast before you level any kind of judgment. At least give me that. Listen to the whole thing all the way to the end, because my hope is not to pile on one side or pit one side against the other. Rather, I, I want to invite us in our current cultural moment to address the only thing we can control, that being ourself. And in doing so, if we can uh, listen to the end and think about what it looks like to work on ourselves um, maybe we'll take one more step toward healing and wholeness and the true and the good and the beautiful. So with that said, uh, let me share a little bit about my journey alongside legalism within a legalistic culture. Um, if you're not 100% sure what I mean by the word legalism, in my experience, it's what happens anytime someone or some group takes the beautiful transcendent teachings of Jesus and boils them down to strict moral and doctrinal codes and demands perfect, strict, unflagging adherence to them. And if you don't behave or believe accordingly, if you're not one of us, if you're not in our group, well, then you are not a Christian. And I know this uh, idea of legalism well because this is the world I grew up in. Before I was born, my parents um, moved from the Catholic Church and they joined a fundamentalist church that was connected to a fundamentalist Christian organization. And nearly everything was about rules and more importantly, obedience to those rules. We actually used to sing a song when we were kids. And if uh, looking back, it was quite indoctrinating. I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, well, for obvious reasons, but the, the song was called obedience and the lyrics were this obedience is the very best way to show that you believe doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately and joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. And the refrain or the chorus was this, O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. -E -E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Now, of, of course, the part about, quote, doing exactly what the Lord commands was really doing exactly what the Christian group that we were a part of said are the things that the Lord commands. And for us, there was a long, long, long list of rules. Like there was, for example you could not go to movie theaters and you could not go to movie theaters because the thinking was you are less likely to get up and walk out in the middle of a movie 
if there is some objectionable content to it. And even if you're going to see a Disney rated G movie, someone might see you walk in and think that you're seeing a rated R movie. So it's best just to stay away. And we all know that if you're in the comfort of your own home and you're watching a movie and something objectionable comes up, then you can hit stop and you can return the VHS tape. Please rewind. Uh, so that was one rule. No movie theaters. There was no jewelry on men of any kind, which, I mean, I was a child of the 80s. So mullets and gold change and a, and a diamond stud in your ear. Uh, I mean, that was all the rage. And if you could get your hands on a black Trans Am with a gold eagle on the hood, all the better. But there was no jewelry on men of any kind except for a wedding ring and a watch. Uh, there was no playing cards. There was no, I always used to hear, you can't wear that. That's worldly clothing. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Uh, of course, there was absolutely no sex, none at all. As a matter of fact, we used to hear holding hands can lead to sex. And by the way, holding hands for us was first base. This is how conservative it was. And you, you don't ever go to first base because if you make it that far, you're going to want to steal second. And we all know that if you're on second, you are in scoring position. So no holding hands. And of course, no alcohol, tobacco, no rock music, Christian or otherwise. I used to hear the, the sentence, Christian and rock don't believe in this, uh, don't belong in the same sentence. And to this day, uh, I don't listen to Christian rock music for very different reasons now than back then, but there was no rock and roll music. Uh, church attendance was very high on the list, Sunday morning, Sunday evening service. And then there was, of course, the Wednesday, Wednesday night uh, prayer meetings. Um, but here's the thing. Legalism was not just all of these rules, however insane they might sound. It was really more about the way people related to the rules, what they believed about the rules, and how they expected others uh, to relate to them and how they enforced the rules. For example, there were certain ways uh, of talking about the Bible and particular beliefs about the Bible and all sorts of things that we were expected to hold and believe and defend. And they were not just a set of beliefs, they were the correct beliefs, and everyone else who believed differently was wrong. And when it came to these beliefs, there was zero tolerance for anyone who questioned them. It was the same with the rules, by the way. There was rules that you had to obey, and these were the rules that indicated one's Christian life, and there was zero tolerance if you broke those rules, no room for anything that was deemed sinful or wrong. So people were cut off and excommunicated almost immediately if they veered away theologically or if they broke the rules. We used to use the term they were backslidden or they were backsliding. And, and the assumption was we need to kick them out. We need to keep the purity of the group. It's the group over the individual. And so if someone steps out of line, they are punished. There's no grace no seeking to understand, no forgiveness, no recognizing we're all broken. Uh, and the only hope for someone who draws the ire and condemnation of people like this is to recant and apologize. There are no excuses, no explanations. They have sinned and they must be punished. And those who did the punishing uh, were considered like the most righteous. They were the people who were in charge. And by righteous, by the way, I mean... They were those who were best at keeping the rules. And what was interesting looking back 
is that those who were the best at keeping the rules were the same people who were often the most miserable. And by that, I mean like very little joy, very unhappy because they were always on the lookout for sin. And it seemed like the only thing that brought them joy, this kind of like perverse self-righteous joy was when they discovered sin in somebody. And then they were able to um, punish them, point it out, call it out. And in all of this, they never seemed to see their own sin. They never seemed to see the ways they were messing up. This is like almost the heart of legalism. And I look back at this and I'm like, how did we not hear the speck and plank story that Jesus told? Where he talks about like, why are you concerned about the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log hanging out of your eye? But this was this was kind of central to the world I grew up in. And of course, this kind of commitment to God was not easy. And uh, they, they were taking stand, a stand against the world. And so part of what came with this is they believed that people in the world, in the world was separate from our little enclave, people in the world were always wanting to attack this group. They were always under attack from the outside and were the favorite target of the enemy, like Satan and his minions. And so we had to be vigilant because we knew that we were under attack because whoever holds the truth uh, are going to be assailed by those who do not hold the truth. So we had to be vigilant about that. And we had to be sure that nobody from the outside with their false teaching and their poor behavior, none of them could get in. We had to be sure that there was no heretics, that there was no heresy that crept in because we are good and we are right. And they, whatever group they is, they are, they are bad and they are wrong. And so we always heard about temptation and the danger of being with people in the world. We heard about the danger of public schools and the danger of state universities because there's so much temptation out there and they're going to mess you up. Uh, and so you didn't even hang out with people in the world because those people could pull you down. I remember one Sunday school class when I was in middle school and the teacher put my friend John up on a chair, standing up on a chair and said to John, John, try to pull me up. And of course, John, like being this 12 year old kid, tries to pull up this fully grown man and can't do it. And then the teacher looks at us and says, now look how easy it is for me to pull John down and like yanks on his arm and John like steps off the chair. And he's like, this is my point. This is what happens when you hang out uh, with people in the world. We're good. We're right. They're bad. They're wrong. So we had to be on high alert um, all the time because we knew people out there were out to get us. And when you're on high alert, when you're almost living with this anxiety, that's like kind of um, turning up the volume on your limbic system, which is your threat detector, you begin to become somebody who's easily offended because you assume whatever anyone is doing is to get you. I remember a preacher one time telling a story about playing golf with uh, some guy that he was paired up with, and the guy kept taking the Lord's name in vain. And so he would hit a bad shot and be like, Jesus Christ. And this guy's telling the story about how angry he was getting that this other person who apparently, I don't know where they were in their faith, was uh, using Jesus's name, in his opinion, in a wrong way. And so finally, this guy gets to the tee box um, at some point in the round of golf he's playing and says to him, so I see you're married. Yeah, yeah. He says, what's your wife's name? And the guy's like, well, my wife's name is Sharon. And he's like, oh, okay. 
So the next time this this preacher hits a bad golf shot, he screams the guy's wife's name, Sharon. And the guy's like, what? And he's like, oh, you want to take my Lord's name in vain. I'll use your wife's name in vain. This is the idea of just being easily offended. I remember another preacher talking about the Jesus fish little sticker that people put on their cars. And he said, you know, when you see those Darwin stickers that have the fish with the legs on it, and he said, and something inside of you wells up and you're so angry. This is this idea of being easily offended. They are out to get us. Now, I realize that at this this moment, you're thinking, this sounds a little bit like a cult. Well, I'll let you make that decision. Um, But it did lead me to this place. Uh, somewhere around early high school, I came to a place where I thought, if this is what Christianity is, then no thank you. I'll pass. I'll go on to something else. And it didn't help, by the way, that I wasn't good at keeping the rules. It didn't help that I couldn't keep quiet. So I would vocalize dissent and I would ask questions and I was always told to be quiet. Questions were not welcomed and any challenge to the group would get you tossed. And So most people, and by the way, this is something I hear from those of you who email me, you talk about this feeling that you have to be quiet, you have to be silent, you can't be honest, you can't challenge the prevailing thinking in whatever context, religious context that you are in, that you can't tell your spouse, your partner, your parents, your siblings about the things that you're wrestling with in your head. You have to sit there and just keep it all inside. So when I talk about this idea of people who have to stay silent, you you know exactly what I'm talking about because if you verbalize this, people get concerned and they try to win you back or they call you out or they'll kick you out, whatever it is. And this, this way of life, this is a sad, sad way of living. And by the way, I don't say that in a condescending way, by the way, condescending means to talk down to you. Um, I say it in, in, a, in truly a way of, I, I've seen the damage that this does in the lives of people. This is a miserable way of life. This is legalism. This is self-righteousness. It's a demand for absolute purity of thought and doctrine and behavior. And it has wrecked so many people. And yet people are still saying, yep, I think this is the way we should do it. Because this kind of living doesn't allow for honesty. And this was always the weirdest thing to me about Christianity in the world that I grew up in. To get into the club, you had to pray a prayer. And the prayer went something like this, dear Jesus, dear God, whatever it is, uh, I admit that I am a sinner. Because the whole idea was sin is what keeps you and bars you from heaven. Sin is what bars you from um, getting to live with God after you die. So you had to start by admitting that you were a mess, that you were messed up, that you weren't right, that you were a sinner. But then once you're in the club, no more sin. You can't do this anymore. So it was always a little bit odd to me that the way you got in, um, like that was your one, one time that you could punch the ticket saying, yeah, I messed up. And then after that, you were expected to be perfect. And at the end of the day, it was ultimately about outward behavior and looking the part. Showing up for church, praying the right way, spouting the right beliefs. And all of this can easily be a cover for an unchanged heart. All of the outward stuff can hide the fact that one is not being transformed into Christ. And this is the world that I thought I left. 
This is the world that I thought was in my past until I began seeing similar attitudes in progressive spaces. Now, at first I couldn't figure out what bothered me about these spaces because some of the conversations we were having, um, when it came to the perspective of it, I had um, some form of agreement with it. But as I listened and observed some people in these spaces, it hit me. This is the legalism and self-righteousness and the demand for ideological purity and the lack of grace that drove me away from God in the church. And now I'm seeing it again. It just has like an updated paint job. But it, it's the same heart. It's the same attitude. And here's what I mean by that. The world I grew up in, as I said, held very little forgiveness and even less grace when one did not practice strict adherence to the rules. And now, in some progressive spaces, I still see a demand for strict adherence to a preferred set of behaviors. Like, there is still dogma and a demand for ideological purity. I mean, think about this. If somebody says or tweets the wrong thing, if somebody steps out of line, there is absolute hell to pay. There is no grace, no seeking to understand. There is no forgiveness or recognizing that we are all broken. As soon as it leaves someone's lips or as soon as they post it on social media, the mob, the self-righteous mob goes after them with their digital torches and pitchforks. It's, it's cancel culture. And the only hope for someone who draws the ire and condemnation of people like this is to recant and apologize. There is no excuses and no explanations. They have sinned and they must be punished. And oftentimes it ends up with this person being kicked out. And why does this happen? Well, because like those I grew up around, we live in a moment when people are often easily offended, just like the guy on the golf course who was screaming Sharon because the dude he was playing with was saying Jesus Christ. By the way, I think it stands to reason if like Jesus somehow was hanging out with you and you stubbed your toe, hit a bad golf shot, whatever it was, and said, Jesus Christ, I think he'd be less offended than the preacher telling that story. But I digress. We live in a time where we're easily offended. Not only that, it seems that we're teaching people now to be easily offended, to take every slight, every misstep in the worst possible light and assume the evil motives of others. That if someone says or does the wrong thing, it is an indication of the whole person, not just that they said something insensitive or offensive, but this is in fact who they are. And then we go on the attack. And let me just say, this is not helpful. In my experience, no one who's attacked for saying the wrong thing or offending somebody or believing the, quote, wrong thing, nobody ever changes within when they're attacked. I had a woman one time uh, after a, a particular teaching come up and was just visibly, visibly, visibly upset, angry, shaking, gritted teeth and asked me a couple of questions that were the more, um, less question, more accusation, and then said to me, you make me sick to my stomach. And at that point, outwardly, um, I re tried to remain calm as a bomb. Inwardly, I felt like everything kind of rising up in me. When she said, you make me sick to my stomach, I was not like, oh, thank you. That's 
that is so helpful to know what my words and ideas do to you. And I'm going to go um, back and think about that and contemplate this. I appreciate you sharing how you feel. It's really moving me forward and it's changing me. Of course not. Attacking people doesn't change them. As a matter of fact, attacking people often roots them more deeply in the very place they are. It can even move them backwards to, to the place where they begin regressing in whatever it is they believe, and, and it can make them more defensive in how they hold what they believe. But this kind of punitive attitude seems to be everywhere at the moment, and this attitude of going out and destroying people is actually keeping people from speaking up. So just like you who, uh, if you're listening, grew up in the conservative environment and you knew you couldn't ask questions, you couldn't be honest about what you were thinking or feeling, well, that's happening again. People who didn't feel permission to be honest about their sincere questions and conservative fundamentalism, now there's groups of people who say, I don't think I can be honest about my sincere questions and disagreements in progressive circles. Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff wrote the book, Coddling of the American Mind, and there's research that bears out that more and more people are afraid to speak up and to offer dissent because to disagree with someone's opinion is no longer okay. We say, if you disagree with me, if you practice dissent, if you, whatever it is, that's unsafe. Why? Why do we say this? Well, because it's their truth. And who are we to argue with what's true? And here's what I find interesting. It's not necessarily truth. It's their experience. It's their opinion. And one's experience is not always a good indicator of exactly what is true. And yet, we've come to a place that has said, if you've experienced it, it is true. We can no longer disagree. And so people are becoming silent. And here's, here's the connection. I grew up in a world where a very small subset of Christians had their opinions, and they said this was the truth. Everyone else is wrong. And you couldn't question that truth because to question that truth was to question God, and you cannot question God. It's the same thing now, except for what's deemed to be truth is a little bit different because now it's the perspective of the individual and not necessarily the perspective of a small group. But whatever truth is, is really rooted in one's opinion and one's experience. And so if one does speak up, just like the world I grew up in, there's an immediate dismissal of them because they're not like us. I was sitting with a group of progressive Christians and we were talking about a particular text in the Bible, and this one woman shared this brilliant insight around the very scripture we were talking about. And somebody said, oh, that's incredible, and we were all commenting on how helpful it was, and someone said, did you come up with that? And she said, no, I actually was reading this this morning. And they said, oh, what, what book was it? And when she named the author... There was about seven of us sitting around the table. Three or four of the people around the table immediately took off on, the, on her and the author because this author disagrees with them on a lot of the things that they hold to be true. And so it wasn't even her opinion. It was that she was with the wrong person. And so just because she's reading the wrong author, she now gets... Um, chastised by people. I one time preached a sermon to a progressive group of um, faith leaders, and I was talking about Jesus in the sermon in the, uh, I'm sorry, the triumphal entry. 
And when he comes into Jerusalem at Passover, which at that point would have been filled with Jewish people from all over the world, it would have been filled with uh, people from every sect within Judaism. It was uh, a time when the Romans came up and kind of increased their patrol for security reasons. And everyone has their agenda around Jesus, and Jesus is weeping over all of it. He's weeping for the Romans. He's weeping for the Pharisees, for his disciples, for the Sadducees, for, for everybody. And I asked the question, for whom do we refuse to weep? For whom do we refuse to weep? Like, who are the people that we just can't tolerate and we, we can't weep over them? And I encouraged us to say, like, I think we need to be those who weep over all people, uh, have a heart of compassion toward all people. And there was a couple of people who came to me afterwards who said, man, you really upset some people in the room. Like, we, you're, one guy said, you're dead wrong, pastor. This, this idea, you can't even, even saying, like, we need to weep over those, maybe with whom we disagree. Nope, we're right, we got it. And what we do is we characterize whole groups of people and assume that's how they are. And by the way, what we mean by that's how they are, we mean they're wrong and they're bad because we are good and we are right. We're good, we're right, and whoever they are are bad and they are wrong. Like my conservative friends in the conservative world I grew up in, we fail to see all of us within us have light and shadow. That the world is not neatly divided up between those who are good and when you hear the word good, think those who think like us, and those who are bad, and when you hear bad, think those who don't think like us. That the line of evil actually cuts right through the middle of the human heart. You see, just like the world I grew up in, in some places of the progressive left, or maybe I should call it the regressive left, quite honestly, um, at the end of the day, it's about outward behavior. It's about looking the part. It's about making you po- uh, sure you post the right thing on social media when something... Um, some particular issue kicks up in the news media. So you don't talk about gun control ever, but when there's a mass shooting, you do. You don't talk about police brutality ever until somebody reports on police brutality. I mean, we have to make sure we post the right thing and that we look the part. Um, It's showing up at the right gatherings and the right rallies. It's dropping the right label when you talk about a particular group. It's referring to the right media sources that you read and consult. And all of this, all of this, can be a cover for an unchanged heart. It's legalism, plain and simple. And all of the outward stuff can hide the fact that one is not being transformed into Christ. President Obama said in October 2019, and I quote, there is a sense sometimes of the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people, and that's enough. If I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or use the wrong verb, then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself. Did you see how woke I was? I called you out. Then I'm going to get on my TV and watch my show. That's not activism. That's not bringing about change. If all you're doing is casting stones, you're probably not going to get that far, end quote. I think he's dead on. And by the way, I love that he talks about casting stones because Uh, There's the story about Jesus saying to the super legalistic religious, hey, if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. At least they had the uh, honesty to drop their rocks and walk away. I mean, at least they had the guts to go, yeah, you got us. Okay. And so they drop their rocks and they walk away and they leave this woman with Jesus. And my hope, honestly, is that we would have the same courage and conviction to drop our rocks 
And at least when we hear, if you're without sin, cast the first stone, take even just a minute, a split second to look within. And I think this is what we need to do is look within. And here's why I say this matters. And here's why I'm talking about this on today's episode. The real danger of legalism is it leaves us and others unchanged. It does not demand we do any real inner work. It only asks us to perform for everyone else to see. Legalism does not care about your heart. I have a friend who grew up in a legalistic environment, and he said, my pastor was always more concerned about what was in my refrigerator than what was in my heart. Speaking, of course, of beer. My pastor was more concerned about what was in my refrigerator than what was in my heart. I have a friend um, that I knew way back when I lived on the East Coast as a child. They were family friends. And then he and I ended up going to the same university, Christian university. And then when I moved to Denver, I found out he lived here. And so we had lunch together. And we were catching up, talking about life, talking about where we had been since college. And he was a guy in college who was behaved really well. He was kind of like the poster child of the university. He was involved in the right ministries and everything else. And he started telling me about all the stuff that he was struggling with and going through when he was in college. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, I behaved so well that anyone who could have helped me through that overlooked me. And I felt like I couldn't say anything. And then he kind of laughed. He's like, but you were like so off the, so off the rails that you got all kinds of attention and like everyone was praying for you. And it's just this idea. If people perform, everyone's like, okay, you're fine. But remember, God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Legalism is all about the outward appearance. And, and, and the reason that this matters, the reason that this is unchanged is that if we are unchanged, the world remains unchanged. I have a friend who was talking about um, the city of Denver with regard specifically to racism. And he was observing how Denver, the city, the urban context is a pretty progressive place. And so while it's not cool to be racist in most places, in Denver, it's like, you, not at all. You can't, you can't even be anywhere near that. And he said, you know, there's a bunch of things that you're supposed to do. There's a bunch of terms that you're supposed to use. There's a bunch of ways that you're supposed to talk. And he said, but here's the thing. He said, racism in Denver is almost more insidious because everyone buries it and hides it. And he said, because once you figure out the way to appear to not only be non-racist, but anti-racist, you can do all of that outwardly. And yet deep down inside, nothing has changed. And this is exactly why I'm talking about this today. Because when it comes to the most important conversations in our current cultural moment, I'm talking about LGBTQ rights, racial equity, patriarchy, um, women's equity, and the gender pay gap, immigration. And the list, by the way, goes on and on and on. What is needed, what is needed in those conversations are transformed people, those who have changed hearts. This is what we need. Richard Rohr says that transformed people transform people. And I would add, hurting people hurt people. Uh, fearful people stir up fear. Transformed people transform people. Angry people anger people. Transformed people transform people. And in my experience, when we are angry, when we're fearful, when we're hurting, when you're in that place, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with you if you're in that place. 
Not at all. We've all we're, we're all in that place to, at, at, just at varying degrees. But when we're not doing our inner work, we don't change our hearts and we don't change the hearts of others. If anything, as I already said, we cause others with whom we disagree to regress, not move forward. And I think this is what we see happening in our current culture. Everyone is so afraid and angry and wounded that we're just launching these verbal grenades at one another. We're just posting the most insane things on social media, all believing that our shit doesn't stink and the fault lies with the other person and no one's moving forward. We're actually regressing and becoming more polarized. No one, no one, when they feel threatened, opens themselves to a new way of thinking. They dig their heels in and become more defensive. And now you might be listening thinking, okay, so you've named a problem. Maybe, maybe we could say you've belabored it just a, <laughs> just a little bit. Um, and so, uh, okay, what do we do? Which, by the way, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, first, I, let me say this. I think we need to think about our containers and our contents. Most of us, when it comes to growth, it's, it, we're changing our contents. And so if you think about like a big, huge container in which we hold our contents, which I, by that I mean our beliefs, our perspectives, our opinions, our values, at some point as we mature, we dump out those contents and we start sifting through the contents that were in the container. And we might take our theology, our beliefs about God, life, faith, spirituality, and throw some of the contents away, throw some of them back in, and then add other contents in from a different source. This happens with politics, with relationships, with culture and everything else. But if we don't think about our container, we will hold our contents the very same way. I mean, have you ever met a fundamentalist, former fundamentalist Christian who's left the church and they left this church and they uh, had a culture of legalism and anger and judgmentalism and everything else. And now they hold new beliefs and yet they're just as angry and jaded as they were when they were in the fundamentalist church. They're almost like bent on converting you to their way of thinking. They're still very evangelistic. They still practice apologetics. It's just about a whole new set of beliefs. I mean, quite honestly, show me a really, really angry, progressive Christian who's highly legalistic, and I will show you someone who grew up in the evangelical church. Because what they do is they just change their contents. They don't change the container. And we need to work on our containers. We need to work on how we are holding what we believe. Because if our containers are cracked and broken and bruised, we're not going to hold these things very well and in a very healthy way, which means we need to do inner work. We need to grow up. We need to become adults. And as I said at the beginning, this is not easy, but it's the only thing we can control. And maybe the reason why so few of us are working on this is because it's hard to look inside. It's hard to see our brokenness and how that brokenness has wounded others. It's hard to look at our ego and our shadow. We'd rather look outside ourselves, believing the problem is out there. In all legalists, whether conservative, fundamentalist Christians or liberal, regressive Christians, fail to see that the problem lies within their own hearts. The problem is always out there. And we need, we need people who can be open and honest and vulnerable about how they are contributing to the problems, how they have wounding within themselves, and how they, just like all of us, are in need of healing and wholeness. And, and I can tell you this, there's something about giving voice to, saying out loud, uh, the worst parts of yourself, 
and saying it to somebody. Maybe a first step for you is simply just writing it down, admitting that it's there. But at some point, it's working up the courage to say it to somebody else. And I, I am so deeply grateful for the people in my life, those who are close to me, who have heard me say these things. And by the way, typically, they're not surprised. They already know. It's just that when you say it, they finally get to be there with you and be in it with you and they embrace you and they walk with you. This is one of the reasons among many, I'm so deeply grateful for my wife um, who knows the worst of me and does not embrace me despite all of that, but embraces me with it. There's a beautiful line in uh, a U2 song called The Song for Someone. Um, lots of beautiful lines and lots of U2 songs in my opinion. But it says, you've got eyes that can see right through me. You're not afraid of anything they've seen. And when you are with a group of people and you dump out the worst parts of you and they're not afraid of you and afraid of what they're seeing, it, there's, there's something just in that that's so healing. And this is, this is where we need to go. This is what we need to do. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, no, 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 no. There is no way I can tell anyone about what's lurking in the shadows of my heart. It would be over. Let, let me say something to you. Uh, with as much compassion and honesty as I can um, and, and something that might be hard to hear. If you are in a community and you admit to them, talk to them, share with them about what's really deeply stirring in your heart, whether this is a belief, whether this is um, a secret that you've held on to, whatever it is, and you know if you give voice to that, they'll kick you out, um, you need new friends. And I know that sounds like, well, wait, wait, hang on. Like, because that, that's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God on display. And you might think, no, you don't understand. If I tell people about this, it will be over. It will actually be over if you don't say something, but it will just take a longer time and it will actually probably be more painful. And know, by the way, if you're in this place where you feel like you have to be silent, know that you are not alone. One of my favorite things about Denver Community Church, where I work, and one of my favorite things about being a pastor is watching people figure out that they can actually be honest here, that they can actually dump out all, all the stuff that, that ha is just like caked with shame and guilt and everything else. And, and, and watching others who are part of community, our community, um, meet that with grace. It's, it's far and away my favorite thing. People who begin to go, oh my gosh, there's, there's, we're, like, there's a bunch of people who are dealing with this. Yes, exactly. Uh, there's a bunch of people who have these questions. Exactly, yes. And I can tell you firsthand, it is absolutely terrifying, terrifying the first time you give voice to this. And then you realize like the world's, the world's still moving. You're still alive. And not only that, but it is absolutely 1000% worth it. And this, this is, this is the journey into wholeness. It's making peace with your past, which I've talked about, talked about before, which means it means re revisiting some of the painful moments. Um, it, it's looking back at the world that you came from, recognizing that it's still in you, no matter what you do and doing grief work 
which by the way, grief also can involve anger. And so if you need moments to just rage, that is okay. There's nothing wrong with anger. It's just an emotion. Uh, sometimes you'll feel sorrow. Sometimes it's um, wrestling through feeling the weight and the sting of rejection and betrayal. It's taking every thought captive. It's, it's slowing down in your life enough to when you are thinking about something, as my friend Dave says, hold on to it and interrogate it and learn everything you can about it, where it's come from, what it's doing to you, what it's saying to you. Is it true? Is it a lie? Um, interrogating it, looking at it, not just allowing it to go past. Uh, it's digging into our journey and it's having funerals for the things that we need to bury. And it's taking the best things along with us because there are some things that we can say, you know what, I went through this and I learned this or I was given this and I will take that with me. And by the way, this is not quick work, not in the slightest. It is, I describe this as like, it's going into a messy room in your heart and it's cleaning the room out. And finally, when you clean the entire room out, you kind of sit down exhausted and then you look up and you see another door that's inviting you to open it. And you're like, come on. I I can't keep doing this. Uh, but this is the path toward freedom. Th this is the path toward liberation. This is the path toward wholeness and health and transformation. Uh, Albert Camus uh, said, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. The only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Do you want to liberate others? If so, you must first liberate yourself. You want to practice resistance? Work for freedom. You want to transform others? Open yourself to transformation. Do you want to love other people well? Then take the risk of allowing yourself to be loved. And I can say this, it's unbelievably hard. It feels like two steps forward, five steps back half the time. Um, but it, it's necessary and it's the best thing one can do because when we become those who can transcend the legalism poor religion offers and avail ourselves to transformation. And by the way, this is the beautiful reality of it. Legalism says, here's all the things you need to do. Transformation says, open yourself up to be worked on. It's no longer you doing things. It's surrendering to the fact that you are loved and it's believing this a little bit more each day. When we do this, this is how we become adults. This is how we become those who are transformed. And I can tell you this, this is what I want. This is however imperfectly, th this is what I'm working toward. Because when we work toward these things, we can, we can live in a more healthy and whole way and invite people toward more health and more wholeness. For example, Rather than say, uh, look at people and assume the worst, we can begin judging favorably because we can realize that just as though we've had certain things in our life that have called, uh, caused us to act in unhealthy ways, these people may have things in their life that have caused them to act in unhealthy ways. It's not looking at people and saying, what is wrong with you? It's looking at people and very compassionately saying, what happened to you? It's giving people the benefit of the doubt. I have a friend named Brian who um, has come to me in the past when I've done things that have wounded him. And in those moments, he doesn't come to me and say, you are a total jerk and you da 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 No, he often comes and says, hey, I know you didn't mean this, 
or I know you probably aren't aware or that you meant no harm, but, and Brian actually, instead of accusing me, he almost always gives me a way out. And it, it's, it's unbelievably inviting. This is somebody who's done the hard work. And I, every time he comes to me, it's, I'm like, Brian, you, you had me at hello. I mean, there's this, it's such a gentle, humble, selfless way of engaging these conversations. Now, some think, well, we need to call people out. We need to disrupt them and we need to get in their face. And there is a place for that. But if you're healthy and whole, you're going to be able to do that well. If you're unhealthy and not whole, you're just going to cause people to regress. And one of the things I've seen is when there are people who are bent on screaming at everyone else and calling them out and disrupting them and everything else, um, those who seem to be the most intense about this are often those who were in a very similar place in their recent past. And when we demand that people become and think exactly like us immediately, we actually deny them the journey that we were given the benefit of undertaking. And it's helpful to remember none of us have arrived. Not one human being. We are all always in process. We're just in different places in that process. It's also helpful to remember um, that if you are a Christian or identify that way, that the direction of God is always toward us. This is seen in Jesus. Jesus came to where we were. So did God, by the way. Poor religion is about getting to God. Healthy religion tells the story of God coming to us. And we, uh, as the people of God, are, are invited to live in imitation of that. And so we're invited to go to where others are and to be with them in that place and to speak with love and grace and compassion and mercy. And by the way, legalism knows nothing about love and grace and compassion and mercy. But, but what I'm learning is that this is how people will move forward. And when we just demand people agree with us or see it our way, we are not going to change their minds and we are just going to cause further division if we really truly want to bring change to bear in this world, we, we need to be those who judge favorably. We need to be those who see individuals with grace and love and mercy and compassion. And we need to share our transformation. And as we are transformed, we will become those who are less offended. Ken Keyes writes in his brilliant work, Handbook to Higher Consciousness, you add suffering to the world just as much when you take offense as when you give offense. You add suffering to the world just as much as when you take offense as when you give offense. You see, when you and I are able to rise above the insults and the hurt and the pain and the insensitive nature of things and the offensive comments. Now, by the way, hear me say this. We need to recognize those things. We need to name them for what they are. If somebody makes a racist comment, we need to say, whoa, 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 time out. That is racist. If somebody makes an insensitive comment, a misogynistic comment, we need to name that. Um, and we, we don't need to believe it. We don't need to believe it's true. We actually need to say this is wrong. Um, but when we are now no longer controlled by people who say and do those things, we actually become far more powerful. We become an empowered group of people. And, and conversely, when we're paralyzed by others' opinions and words, they are controlling us. I mean, let's, let's talk a moment about President Donald Trump. Um, and some of you are like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I actually find this, our cultural moment with him incredibly fascinating, and here's why. Now, we, like I said, we need to name um, 
things that are wrong. We need, we need to name the evil when we see it. We need to call out unjust policies. And by the way, I would say the church is to be a prophetic community, which means speak truth to power. We have ceded that responsibility to our media. And now our media is doing it from polarized propaganda-esque sides. So hear me say, we need to speak out and we do need to speak out against unjust policies wherever they are and from whatever party it comes from. What I find fascinating about President Trump is people's like near constant obsession with his Twitter account, with his uh, pressers outside of his helicopter, with his um, every word he speaks. And it's been fascinating to watch like this. President Trump actually has unbelievable power over so over millions of people who cannot stand him. And they think, well, no, he doesn't have power. Oh, he does. Every time he says something, people lose their minds. And, and I'm, I'm here thinking, like, no, no, no. We need to name the wrong uh, when and where we see it. And we need to move toward justice. But just continuing to scream and tweet back, and that, I'm not sure that that's the healthiest form of resistance. Um, I think we need to be those who are empowered and are able to rise above that. And now, let me conclude this way. Some of you may be listening this whole time, and maybe, as I said at the beginning, you're like, I'm going to listen to the whole thing. And you're saying to me, you know, this all smacks of privilege. I mean, I recognize that you're, you know, some of the things you're saying might have some truth to them, but you don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know uh, what it's like to be kicked to the margins because of the uh, color of your skin, because of your gender, because of your sexual orientation. And it's easy for you to talk about this, but you don't know what it's like to be me. And if that's what you're thinking, let me be very clear and say this. You are absolutely right. I do not know what it's like to be you. Uh, And I'm not going to try and say, no, 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 I can imagine. I can't. I can't. And to the extent that I can, I recognize who I am as one in our current uh, cultural context, one who is like given uh, all sorts of rights and privileges because I'm white, because I'm a male, because I'm straight, because I'm a Christian. Um, And so uh, to the extent that I can, I recognize that. And I want to be really clear on this point. Um, I have not, and I never will apologize for the world I was born into and the way I was born into this world. I did not ask to be a male, did not ask to be white, did not ask to be Christian, did not ask to, I mean, all of these things. This is the world I was ushered into. I will, however, I will, however, repent and seek forgiveness and apologize. And by the way, this is an ongoing process for me for the ways in which I have been complicit in systems of power and in systems of privilege and enjoyed those things while failing to use what I have been given for the greater good. Um, for, for those things, I, I will um, repent and apologize and, and seek forgiveness. Um, and, and I want to name the ways in which I fail. I want to see the ways in which I, which I fail as much as I am able. I want to see that in myself, and I want to continue to learn from others and from my own reflection um, about my social location in the world. And so if you're here and you're listening and you're thinking like, well, this, you're just saying this because da, 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 da. Um, to the extent that I'm able, I'm aware of that. But I, I will never know what it is like to 
feel uh, rejected, hate, and all these other awful things simply because of who you are. Um, but the one thing I do believe is regardless of who we are and what our social location is in this world, I do believe that we are all as human beings, as image bearers, invited toward wholeness and healing. And I think that part of our healing um, will lead us to the place where we're able to name in a very healthy way our social locations, that we are able to name our difference, that we are able to, with great love and mercy and compassion, invite others to see who they are because we are learning about who we are and we're healing in those places. And I, I think in this, we need to be able to name difference, that we need to honor difference. I think we need to invite difference to the table. I think we need to learn to listen. And I think some of us need to learn to listen more than others because some of us, like me, have had the uh, dominant voice for a long time, which means that we need to spend a season listening more than we speak. I think we need to seek to learn and understand and not assume that everyone's just going to teach us, but we need to be curious and, and pursue our world. We need to seek to understand more. Um, we need to be willing to share of our own experience. We need to be humble and confess and repent as often as it's needed. We need to bear responsibility for the ways that we have, even without knowing it, um, contributed to the pain of others. If you've wounded someone and you're not aware of it, that does not exonerate you. Ignorance is not an excuse. It's simply humbly saying, I'm sorry, forgive me, repenting, changing the way you think and, and live and doing better. And, and I think only when we do this are we able then to pursue oneness and unity. And by the way, don't hear me when I say oneness and unity. Um, don't mistake that for assimilation. I'm not talking about like the cheap kind of unity where we all just kind of get together and ignore difference and, and we're going to be fine. That's actually a return to legalism. Legalism um, demands unity, not difference. They want uniformity, not uh, over and above unity. What I'm talking about is the kind of unity where we name the difference and we pursue unity anyway. It's the kind where we hold on to one another in the midst of struggle. And I would say this is actually what we witness in the life of God. We, we have something in the Christian tradition called the Trinity in which there are three distinct members and there are pronounced differences, and those differences are honored, and those differences are named and everything else. And yet, the central confession of the Jewish uh, people is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. That there is a profound oneness within God. There is a unity among difference. And, and I think this is, this is something we need to pursue. That if all we're demanding is everyone believe the same thing, that's legalism. If everyone has to think, act, talk, believe the same way, that, that's, that's like, well, actually, that's like a cult. Um, and I think when we rally around beliefs, there's a very, that's a very fragile thing to rally around. And if we are to transcend that, we do that by naming and holding and honoring difference while pursuing union with God, which then will lead to union with one another. And if we can do this, it's possible that your pain will become my pain and that my pain will become your pain. It's possible that we can even begin sharing in our hopes, in our dreams, and that together we can build something more healthy using our unique gifts and calling and experience, and we will be, in the end, those who participate in transformation. And I really deeply believe this is what we need because 
Legalism does not change anything at any deep level, whether it is from the left or whether it is from the right. Legalism does not have the power to transform anything. But if we together undergo the hard work of transformation, if we together do our inner work, if we can become transformed people, then it stands to reason that we just might be able to exist as a transforming presence because transformed people transform people. And so may you, maybe your next step is simply to begin writing these things down, being honest, being open. And my hope is that you would have the courage to look within that you would know that when we name our brokenness, when we open our hearts wider, we receive more grace. And so may we together pursue that inner work. May we together pursue that transformation for ourselves and for our world. And that, my friends, that is it for today. On the next episode, I will be back to talk about the simplicity of my beliefs. But until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.